A large crowd had assembled around the old brick courthouse of the town of Hampton, near St. John in New Brunswick. On the steps of the courthouse, a microphone had been set up. Politicians and dignitaries stood on the balcony, awaiting the arrival of a very special guest. The crowd hushed as Magistrate Arthur J. Kelly stepped to the microphone and read the following proclamation. This certificate of naturalization is given under our hand and seal this 27th day of March in the year 1946. Know all men by these here presents that the royal lady herein, after known as Princess Louise, is hereby named and proclaimed a citizen of the great dominion of Canada and a free woman of the village of Hampton. Let it be known to all and sundry that should the said princess require at any time succor, aid, or any form of help or assistance, it shall be the bounden duty of any and all citizens to afford such assistance, or bear the full penalty of the law. Furthermore, as such, said princess is entitled to roam at will in the hills and vales, and to devour and partake in that which she pleaseth whether it be carefully tended garden, or from the bursting warehouses, and in addition find and take lodging wheresoever she desireth, whether it be in private home, public building, or number one and two fire sheds. The military band began to play as the crowd cheered as the princess approached, escorted to the stage by a military guard of honor composed of veterans who just returned home from the Second World War. A reporter for the Evening Times Globe newspaper wrote that the princess had traveled 16,000 miles to get there. Local children who'd been hanging around the military headquarters where the princess had been staying since she arrived to try and catch a glimpse of her went wild as she finally came into view. Up the courthouse steps walked the princess, her chestnut hair blowing in the wind, peering over the railing and looking down her long nose at the jubilant crowd below. The mayor brought over an unusually large certificate of naturalization document to the princess for her signature. Princess Louise examined it briefly, then stamped on it, leaving behind the imprint from her horseshoe. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Back when I was in my undergrad, still just a teenager, actually at 19 years old, I went to Italy for a couple semesters studying abroad. One day, I was in a tiny seaside town in the south of Italy with my class, walking over a hill overlooking a harbor along the Mediterranean Sea. My class had gone ahead, and I was alone, dawdling behind as usual, when a very old man came up and began rapidly talking to me in Italian. He was gesturing at my backpack, onto which I'd sewn a Canadian flag. The old man began talking to me in this really fast Italian. I don't speak Italian, and actually I have an unfortunate habit of panicking and replying in French whenever anyone talks to me in any language I don't understand, which only just confused the old man. But he was determined to tell me a story, which he conveyed through the universal language of hand gestures and sound effects, which I got the gist of. The old man patiently expressed to me how decades and decades earlier, back when he was just a little boy, 
Warships had entered the very harbor we were now overlooking in the dead of night, and they began firing their cannons. This old man, then just a little boy, was terrified of the gunfire, and he hid under his bed as the explosions from the warship shells rang out. Once the sun had risen, the little boy crawled out from under his bed and ventured outside onto the hot and dusty streets of his hometown to find it was now filled with foreign soldiers. As he stared frozen in fear at the strange men holding guns, one of the soldiers noticed him and called out in a language the little boy didn't understand, beckoning him to come closer. The little boy anxiously approached as the soldier crouched down and fished around in his army rucksack. He pulled out from his bag a chocolate bar and handed it to the little boy. That little moment of kindness from one unknown Canadian soldier stuck with that little Italian boy so much that when he saw my country's flag on my backpack more than six and a half decades later, that old memory was the first thing that came to his mind. By the autumn of 1944, the Canadian invasion of Mussolini's fascist Italy had swept well past the south where I had encountered that old man. By that point, they'd liberated Rome and they were continuing onwards towards the north of Italy. But their steady advance was finally halted by the formidable fortified defenses known as the Gothic Line. This was not defended by fascist Italians, but instead by their powerful allies, the Nazi Germans. The fighting along the Gothic Line had devolved into the kind of horrific and brutal slog that we usually associate with the First World War complete with unmoving battle lines, constant artillery attacks, and brutal casualties. New Brunswick's only tank regiment, called the 8th Hussars, had been sent to Italy to try and break the Gothic line. A Hussar is an ancient Hungarian word, dating all the way back to early medieval times, that means a horseman. While the 8th Hussars don't go back quite that far, they do have a long and distinguished history dating all the way back to 1775. Like their name implies, they had indeed once been a cavalry unit, which is to say, they'd once been horsemen. By 1944 though, when the story takes place, the 8th Hussar's horses had long since been replaced by tanks. However, the Canadian military is even today very proud of its long traditions. And they also enjoy making their American friends jealous that our traditions date back even further than theirs, courtesy of the British connection. This meant that, despite driving tanks, the 8th Hussars still very much liked to think of themselves as modern horsemen, which meant these military men in tanks still had a deep-seated affection for horses. The commanding officer of the 8th Hussars while they were in Italy was Lieutenant Colonel Bob Ross, who <clears throat> is not in any way related to the famous painter. This Bob Ross was a stern and grizzled old war veteran with gruff manners and, as we shall see, a secret soft heart of gold hidden beneath this rugged exterior. Bob Ross later explained his tank regiment's deep and ancient love of horses, declaring in a 1979 speech that he called The Last Horse that... It is sad to contemplate the transposition in cold blood of a regiment which loved its horse into a mechanical outfit dealing in nuts and bolts. The horse hunger persisted and many a surreptitious pat was administered to the gaunt flanks of Italian equines of 
doubtful lineage and craggy outline. Perhaps realizing that horse hunger sounds bad, Bob Ross quickly added to his speech in parentheses. Horse hunger means men missing horses and is not to be confused with a longing for horse meat. Although the daily de-resistance of tinned bully beef in our rations was presumed to be composed of ancient steeds. Bob Ross ordered the Hussars to use their iron steeds to launch a midnight surprise attack on Coriano Ridge along the Gothic line, which was held by the Germans. Or as the Canadians called them, the Jerrys. The attack didn't go well. The Germans spotted the Canadian tanks coming in a line. They disabled the first tanks with artillery fire, which caused the rest of the tanks to get stuck. The Hussars who crewed those tanks scrambled out of them and ran back to the safety of the Canadian lines, leaving behind their iron steeds. Bob Ross was furious when he learned that his troops had abandoned their tanks, telling them, Well, you lost them. Go out and get them. Under the cover of darkness that night, several Canadian tank drivers and mechanics were sent back to try and fix up and return their iron steeds that they'd left behind. According to Bob Ross, Jerry, however, was no more stupid than we usually found him and seemed to have a general idea of what was going on. So bursts of machine gun and shell fire punctuated the activities of the mechanics with sufficient frequency to cause them all to spend a considerable amount of time under the tanks. Between gunfire and artillery blasts, the Canadian soldiers heard what sounded like a scream. Assuming the scream came from one of their members, a particularly brave soldier volunteered to get out from under the tanks where they were hiding and figure out who it was that had just been killed so that they could inform their loved ones back in Canada. However, when that volunteer returned, he, according to Bob Ross, cleared up the gruesome mystery by announcing in a voice usually reserved by mothers for their sick children. Boys, it's a little horse hit by a hunk of a shell. The little horse's mother had been killed by a direct hit from an artillery shell several days earlier. Ever since, that little horse had been helplessly walking around in circles around her mother's body, so much so that the ground itself was worn down and trampled. She was so skinny that the bones were showing through her skin. Several pieces of shell had cut her hide and she was badly in need of medical attention. Coming under even more fierce attack by the Germans, and with dawn's light rapidly approaching, the Canadians scurried back to their lines. They hadn't managed to repair or recover any of their tanks, which was, after all, their mission. But even worse, as far as these soldiers were concerned, was that they had not been able to get close enough to the little horse to rescue her. According to Bob Ross, This sorry sight, of course, tore the hardened hearts of ex-cavalry fitters virtually to shreds, and on their return at dawn, they told the story with low moans of concentrated anguish and couldn't possibly touch their breakfasts. They immediately applied en masse for permission to bring the poor little thing back to the lines and were told with some acerbity that the recovery job they were on did not include the recovery of horses or any other quadruped which happened to engage their fancy, and that senior authority would take a dim view of hearing that half a dozen specialized mechanics had been knocked off by Jerry while they were engaged in removing a nondescript Italian nag from the danger area. 
This, of course, was all window dressing, and they soon had the answer they wanted, with the stipulation that no one was to get hurt in the process, and that the horse recovery was not to interfere with the recovery of the tanks. The word that there was going to be a horse rescue operation that coming night spread like wildfire through the 8th Hussars camp. Lieutenant Colonel Bob Ross was overwhelmed with the requests he received to volunteer to go save the little horse. A special team set off just after nightfall, while the rest of the Canadian soldiers anxiously waited for news about what happened to the little horse. The next day at dawn, the expedition returned from their effort to recover their tanks and the horse. Bob Ross later explained, The recovery score that night was one horse and one tank. The statistics branch has never been able to reduce to figures how many tanks might have been recovered that night if no horse had been involved. It was about the only thing they didn't reduce to a graph. Once back to safety and in the light of day, the Canadians realized that they had rescued a, to be perfectly frank, a rather unusual-looking little horse. No one seems to have ever quite figured out exactly what type of a horse she actually was. Most guesses were that she was an obscure type of breed of horse found in Germany, which implies that she'd once been a horse on the other side of the war. She had a rather long nose, even for a horse, and these stubby little short legs and a rather round torso. She'd been grievously wounded with a deep cut from artillery shrapnel. Her rescuers brought her to the medical tent where the astonished medical officer, Captain Tom Dalrymple, protested by arguing that he was no horse doctor. Captain Dalrymple, though, was quite well known throughout the region for his much celebrated desire to treat anyone who showed up at the camp. He was, of course, treating wounded soldiers, as was his job, but he was also taken to treating sick and wounded Italian civilians. As his reputation spread throughout war-torn Italy that this Canadian military doctor would not turn anyone away, more and more Italian civilians came from far and wide to see him. His assistant later recalled, They came to us with sick babies, teeth to be pulled, everything. So. Despite his initial surprise and protests, perhaps it didn't come as a shock to anyone when Captain Dalrymple agreed to take care of the little horse. Even so, it wasn't an easy thing to heal a horse. She was not only malnourished and ill, but she had several severe wounds, including a deep 8-inch laceration on her side. Soldiers found her oatmeal and powdered milk. The doctor was running short on drugs which was causing an enormous headache on how to sedate this horse in order to operate on her. The, um, shall we say, particularly maritime solution that they came up with was to get this horse super drunk on rum. There was really no debate, however, over what the horse's name would be. Princess Louise, after the regimental title of the 8th Hussars. That title, and the nickname the 8th Hussars still go by today, dates back to 1879, when the unit still rode horses. Then, the 8th Hussars had been visited by Queen Victoria's fourth daughter, Princess Louise Caroline Alberta, who was perhaps better known for her nickname, the Rebel Princess, because of her precocious disregard for Victorian gender norms. 
The eighth Osiris had been so charmed by her that they adopted the regimental title, the Princess Louise Regiment, in her honor. And now, they'd been so charmed by the little horse that they named her after the rebel princess. As Princess Louise began to heal, the Canadians grew more possessive of her. The feeling was mutual. Several Italian civilians claimed that she belonged to them. For her part, though, Princess Louise would try and bite and kick at the Italians if they got too close. However, she was fond of anyone who was wearing the Canadian khaki. It seemed that she had decided that she was going along with the Canadians. By this point, the Gothic line was a stalemate, and the Eighth Hussars and their tanks were needed elsewhere. They were told that they were leaving Italy to help liberate Belgium and the Netherlands. Soldiers from Brazil came and replaced their positions as they prepared to go. But what were they supposed to do with Princess Louise? Thad Stevens, who would later become the horse's caretaker, recalled in an interview with the Kings County Record newspaper. They couldn't move her from Italy to Holland because there were strict orders that no animals be taken out of Italy. Monty had seen the horse and knew how much it meant to the boys. The boys made up their minds that they were going to take the colt to Holland, so they fixed up a truck and loaded it with machine guns. They put the machine gun boxes up the side and in the middle, surrounded by machine gun boxes, some of which were empty, was the colt and the sergeant. The ship docked in Marseille in France. The 8th Hussars, with Princess Louise in tow, traveled by train to Belgium, where they arrived just in time for the victory parade. Bob Ross recalled, And on her first parade there turned out spick and span, and fell in on the right of the line with her customary poise and smartness. Then it came time to join the other Canadians in the fight to liberate the Netherlands from German occupation. There, the Eighth Sires were engaged in brutal fighting in the effort to free the Dutch people. Princess Louise helped out, working as a war horse. And the princess went to work and drawing a two-wheeled gig, bringing supplies to soldiers who were hard at work fighting in notoriously muddy conditions. By late April of 1945, Nazi Germany was teetering on the brink of complete capitulation. Princess Louise and the Eighth Hussars were at that time in the liberated Dutch village of Ilde. The people of Ilde were deeply enamored with Princess Louise. She became as much the pride and joy of the Dutch as of her own unit. They referred to her as Our Horse, and people from far and near came to her paddock to praise and admire. However, even as it was obvious to all that Germany would surrender in a matter of days, the Eighth Hussars were called up to the front to fight in one final battle. An elite German unit had fortified the port of Delfzell with concrete bunkers the size of houses with walls four feet wide. All of this came as a surprise to the Irish Regiment of Canada, who thought that they could simply walk into the town on foot. The Irish Regiment, who were, by the way, in no way Irish, they were from Sudbury, Ontario, found themselves trapped and pinned down by artillery fire. According to Canadian military historian Jeffrey Williams in his book The Long Left Flank, the New Brunswick Hussars broke through to seize the railway station on the northern outskirts of the town 
Immediately, the enemy's resistance faltered and boats filled with German soldiers were seen fleeing. In its final operations of the war, they had captured 4,143 prisoners and liberated one of the last areas occupied by the Nazis. Next day, 2nd May, the last of the enemy in Northeast Holland were killed or captured. Five days later, Nazi Germany surrendered and the war was over in Europe. As the 8th Hussars turned their minds towards their eventual trip home, they began to ask what would happen to Princess Louise. The rules were clear. The horse was strictly forbidden from coming back to Canada. Every space on the ships needed to be reserved for the troops going back home. The soldiers began contacting everybody they could think of in England and Canada to try and get some kind of special exemption for their horse. But nobody seemed to understand their special bond with the animal. Eventually, they pleaded their case with J.C. Patterson, the Canadian Pacific Railway representative for Europe. He was familiar with Princess Louise already, but not necessarily in a positive way. She'd already been a headache for him because he'd already had to deal with a lot of paperwork to get the horse on the train earlier to get her from Marseille to Belgium. According to Bob Ross, after hearing of yet another favor that was being asked on Princess Louise's part, J.C. Patterson took a deep breath, counted up to ten, and in a steady voice assured the unit representatives that he would personally see that the horse was transported to Canada if he had to swim the whole distance towing the princess on a raft. However, when the time came for the 8th Hussars to go home, the weather was particularly terrible, so the hard decision had to be made to leave Princess Louise behind in Europe. Much to J.C. Patterson's astonishment, that horse that had been long causing him so much annoyance had actually been left behind for him to take care of. And that was the last that anyone heard of the horse named Princess Louise for about a year. By March of 1946, the troops had long since returned home, and the story of the little horse who had traveled Europe with soldiers and their tanks had already become a legendary tale in the Maritimes. Absolutely everyone knew the tale of Princess Louise, and they wondered what had become of her. All of a sudden, there was a mass exodus of New Brunswick's recently demobilized soldiers towards New York City. Word had come that Princess Louise had just arrived there on a Dutch cargo ship. The former soldiers brought Princess Louise on the train from New York City to St. John. There she was met by a parade, including soldiers in uniforms and even tanks, to take her to a welcoming ceremony in King's Square. She trotted in the lead of the parade, and Thad Stevens recalled, She knew as much about parades as any soldier. At attention, she never moved. Thad Stevens even mentioned that she'd learned to count by stomping her hoof. Although he did admit, I'd give her a nudge when it was time to stop. After that, Princess Louise went to Hampton, where a ceremony was held to award her Canadian citizenship. While she was known as a good marcher and had a deep love of soldiers, or for that matter, anywhere in wearing khaki, she, on the other hand, didn't seem to have the same high opinion of Canadian politicians. She actually, in her later career, caused some minor political scandals, like, for example, 
eating a bouquet of flowers as it was being presented to the governor general, pooping on the floor of New Brunswick's legislature, and at one point attempting to bite a politician's bum while he was giving a speech. Not only that, but she became known for the soldiers for her astonishingly bad diet. She would hang out in the officer's mess at the 8th SARS headquarters, and she would drink beer and even whiskey. She would also eat candy, sugar, chewing tobacco, cookies, oranges, cigarettes, and well, pretty much everything except cheese. She really hated cheese. Despite her atrocious diet, she lived a really long life. In 1969, at the age of 25 years old, she retired. A party was held for her in Sussex, in which she was presented with a cake, which she ate in what was described as a very unladylike manner, and completely getting herself covered in icing. Princess Louise would go on to live until 1973, when she passed away of old age on a farm in Hampton. She was given a special army funeral with full military honors. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.